0: Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy, while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wozolowski, and it's time to talk tech. As our society becomes ever more digitized, connectivity becomes more important to our daily lives. High-speed broadband access is now essential for participation in the digital economy, as well as a range of social and civic activities. So what does it mean for those without access? Today, we're talking about the broadening digital divide in America. First, we hear from Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee of the Brookings Institution, who shares stories from her research on the very real challenges many Americans face who have limited or no access. After that, we look at how public-private partnerships are being developed to help bridge the divide. Scott Turnbull of U.S. Ignite shares his thoughts on what these partnerships could look like and how communities can come together to address new connectivity concerns in the digital age. Roughly 20 million Americans still lack access to high-speed broadband service, and rural areas are hit the hardest. While this digital divide is narrowing, less connected communities are too often left behind in the digital revolution. Today's guest is Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, a fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. She has a forthcoming book that looks at these issues titled The Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass, Welcome, Nicole.
1: Hey, I'm so happy to be here We're so
0: glad to have you. How's that book coming? Oh,
1: my goodness. How is the book coming? <laughs> um, I'm on the last leg of my seven-city tour, yes. which I will do in this excruciating heat headed down to Alabama to look at Internet access in the South. And then after that, you know, I'm getting back to finishing up that manuscript. So your listeners should expect a really interesting portrayal of the American Digital Divide uh, in the t- year 2020.
0: All right well that's not too far off we have a lot to look I forward know. in 2020 Can you right
1: 2020 <laughs> I don't know I'm old but 2020 sounds really future right around
0: the corner and we are looking forward to that book. <laughs> Thank you. So you're writing about being on the wrong side of the digital divide. What does that exactly mean for folks who don't know? And what are some of the effects of being on the wrong side of the digital divide?
1: You know, this is an interesting concept. For about 25 years, I've been involved with this issue, uh, starting back when I was a digital evangelist working in the community. That's a great title. I know. I, I, it's like a preacher, right? But I'm all about <laughs> digital, right? So, I mean, I'm a Christian, too, but I'm just saying. You know. <laughs> but back in the days, I used to work in the space of the Community Technology Center movement. And it was all about, how do you bring telecenter resources to people who are underserved? At that time, we actually had the digital divide. Larry Irving, a good friend of many of yeah. us, came up with that term when he was at the Department of Commerce. Here he was talking about who's online and who's not. This binary construct of having access to this burgeoning internet. Today, being on the wrong side of the digital divide really matters. And why does it matter? Because we no longer live in an analog world. The things that we do are no longer in line. It's all online. It's no longer, as President Obama used to say, uh, the internet is no longer a luxury. It's a necessity. You know, there's still conversations on whether or not it's a human right. But I would say that this technological innovation that's now branched into our ability to leverage our mobile phones to get transportation or health care or to get our kids' grades, it's really reshaping how we live, learn, earn social socialize, communicate love in our society today. And that's really important that you're on the right side of this debate, because the further that you're away from it, the more you're going to be left behind.
0: Talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to be left behind? What are some of the impacts that you see?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that there's, and the Federal Communications Commission has played this out, there's the being left behind on the infrastructure side. So what does it mean to live in a community where you do not have access? Uh, There are no resources for high speed broadband service. You're basically in what I call a digital desert. Mm-hmm. Or it's it's so silent. I'll give you a personal story. I was taking my kids to camp up in Goshen, Virginia. Okay. I don't even know where that is. I don't know either. <laughs> I had to use my Waze app. This is the point of my story, right? I'm using my Waze application, my GPS application to get there. Certain point it blacks out. My kids start freaking out because before us are a bunch of cows and a bunch of green pastures, and we don't know where to turn next. We got to go back to the nearest town where we had three or four bars on the phone, get the application again, and then... You know, this time I was smart. I screenshotted, right? Well done. Yes. But without an atlas, we had no idea where we we're going. So I said to my kids, I said, "Imagine living in this world where you don't have access. You cannot take advantage of the basic things like a GPS application, a textbook that's now converted into an mm-hmm. ebook." There are areas in this country—55 million uh, adults in this country, or comu- individuals in this country—who live in rural areas lack broadband access. That's a problem because we cannot get the resources out to those communities fast enough for them to. be be connected so there's an infrastructure divide there's a divide on the stance of who has access to a device and who does not Uh, the inability of people to access the uh, platforms that are available via the internet really are dependent upon your ability to have something to access it with Um, If you're a person without an internet-enabled tablet or phone or some other device or any kind of residential broadband connection, you're out of the loop. So there's an infrastructure side, there are sides that are related to consumers. And now we have, and this is what I talk about in my book, which is why I call it this new underclass. We have this information economy fueled by data. And that data determines where services and products go. And if you live in a community, let's say here in DC, where you live on the other side of the river, and you're not able to get access to things like Uber Eats or other yeah. you know, exploratory robots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're gonna live in a community where, again, you're in a digital desert. Because the cost of digital exclusion means that you cannot pay the convenience and the lower prices of an, a ride-sharing service, you have to go back and rely upon traditional modes of transportation. So this divide is now playing itself out, in a compared to what Larry Urban talked about, in a less binary way. It's actually multifaceted now. And that digital divide is something, again, where where you sit, are you silenced because you have no infrastructure, Are you silenced because you have no way to connect to the conversations that are happening online? Are you silenced because you cannot benefit from the uh, conveniences as well as the savings and discounts that come from being in a digital society? That's the new digital divide
0: yeah no that's that's the best definition i've heard i was i was going to ask you but you've already essentially answered this what sort of communities are most impacted by this a lot of people i think first go to oh rural communities that makes sense you can't get the cables out there or the fiber out there because they're more remote but you're talking about also urban settings places where there are population densities but different types of digital divides. You got it. Do you want to go a little bit deeper into some of the things that you've seen from your tour of these cities, uh, either in rural settings or in cities?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually seeing like multiple layers of digital, digital access play out. So I was in Stanton, Virginia, for example, is one of the cities that I went to. You have uh, Small Business America who would like to export out their products outside of Main Street, but can't do it because they don't have enough uh, broadband service to actually do it externally so as one person said you know i kind of see the last mile of broadband service from my farm <laughs> um, and that's about all i can do so i gotta go into town and i've gotta get online at some cafe and i gotta order products and equipment etc it you know makes it really inconvenient then there are areas like in stanton when you cross the tracks where african americans settled after uh, reconstruction four generations of families were living in this one household that i visit the uh uh family was very, the Mulgrave family. And the young gentleman that came out, was the youngest of the brothers, told me, at the end of the, at the middle of the month, I run out of data on my phone and as a result, as a day laborer, I cannot get work. Oh, wow. Because he can't afford to keep his phone access up. So those are divides that exist even within the same community. You take places like Washington, D.C. or you take places like uh, New York. When you start to go into certain uh, census track areas where the density of poverty is a little higher, you have less competition. So people have to rely upon maybe two Uh to three providers versus six to seven providers. I mean, this divide is playing itself out in ways that I find very fascinating as I go out into different parts of the country. I was in Syracuse, the city of Syracuse. Syracuse University has a robust network backhaul. You go just two blocks where the very first public housing development was actually established in New York State. And what divides them from the university is a highway, (laughs) pretty much. (laughs) And you talk to those people in that public housing development and they say they don't have any broadband. Or, in fact, the city of Syracuse is a study. It's like one out of every four person is lacking broadband service. So, And I think that's a statistic, but it's very glaringly deficient in terms of what we're seeing in the city of Syracuse. And this is an urban center. And so I think what we're looking at as we go forward, that these pockets within communities exist, again, where this necessity is not available to people, and in my view, it perpetuates the very trajectory of poverty that we're trying to break people out. You know, when I was growing up, (laughs) the internet was seen as the lowest barrier to entry, right? To be online, Meant that you could be online in your pajamas. You could be online. You could be black. You could be online. You could be poor. You could be rural. It didn't matter who you were because it was one of those device, those communication portals where no one could see you and no one could actually identify who you are. Now it's a little different now it's because very of different, data, yeah. but you know that was twenty something years ago. But it didn't matter where you were in this world that you could actually, through internet access, find yourself a gateway to opportunity. Today that's different, and I think that's complicated by the divides that I mentioned.
0: Yeah, it does sound like a far more complicated challenge. Can we talk a little bit about possible solutions? And now I feel that we need to talk about it down a lot of streams. Let's think first about broadband access, one of the things that you talked about. Um, How do we get greater broadband access in places where there isn't access? Is it building out networks? Is 5G potentially part of the solution?
1: You know, I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's about what are the solutions versus what are the divides. I think we're at a state in our uh, history from regulatory and legislative directives to stop picking winners and losers as to where we deploy broadband. If there is a young person, and I've met these folks on my tour, that is interested in wiring up a city of 500 people, let them do it. I met a guy who uses a fixed wireless solution to bring wireless service to the 500 residents. His story was interesting. He said, I have funded it by myself. I've leased everything except my wife (laughs) 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 to be able to build this network. I am the builder, the customer service agent. I'm the troubleshooter, but guess what? 500 people have access in this country as a result of this young man in Nebraska. So I think, to your point, we've got to figure out ways that we actually come up with solutions that fit what the nature of the problem is. In areas like uh, Washington, D.C., where we have a lot more um, competition and we've got various ways to get online, whether it's through residential broadband, 5G is a potential option. We need to find ways to encourage that. The more these networks are able to hold the capacity of these new devices, whether it's the Internet of Things, whether it's these new cloud-enabled platform um, platforms and applications, the better. We're no longer in a space where you can pull up at a gas station and put in 87 if what's being required is 93 in terms of the fuel octane yeah. level, right? So we need to figure out ways to build bigger and faster broadband for people. So that's the first thing. I think that goes to the infrastructure Issue. Okay. And I think Congress, as well as the regulatory agencies like the FCC who are responsible for this, RUS U.S., need to figure out ways to actually pool funding to get this done. I think the second thing when it comes to consumers, we cannot assume that people can afford this still. Yeah. Uh, we have more people, if you ever drive on or you're ever on a metro train, more people who are on their devices doing whatever they please and whatever they want to. But it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has the same affordability index when it comes to being online. We have programs like the Lifeline program that was created uh, mm-hmm. through Ronald Reagan in 1986 that provides a small scale subsidy to uh, low-income people to be able to get online now used to be just telephone service and it went to wireless service and now there's broadband. I'm suggesting in my book, for example, that $995 may not be enough, but if we cannot change that discount in terms of what we give people, why is it that we cannot exempt from people's data caps access to .govs?
0: That would be great. And that EDUs. That. How about EDUs. that too? <laughs>
1: I mean, I've been looking at that and exploring that. Let me tell you why. We could do it for Netflix. Why can't we do it for content that is going to improve the quality of life for people? Hmm. It means that a young person can go to a workforce development site and take a training class online without feeling that that's going to count against his or her minutes. Why can't we do that? So I'm pushing in there I think we need to be much more creative given that the technological space has allowed for that creativity. I also think that we have to figure out who's responsible for covering the poor. The Universal Service Fund has primarily been developed and funded through telecommunications companies. Through consolidation, we've actually seen these number of companies reduce. We've got more platform players that actually make much more money in advertising Mm -hmm. revenue. We need everybody to cover the poor. This is a social responsibility of this country to ensure universal access, particularly when governments decide that they no longer have storefronts and you have to get your benefits online. Who is taking that up? And that's a question I also put into my book. I also think in terms of solving the divide, we need to also think about, you know where are there applications that should make more sense to, for us to put more emphasis on. Internationally, company countries are beating us when it comes to the use of mobile uh, phones for healthcare.
0: Absolutely.
1: And banking. We've got to figure out ways to integrate some of these technologies into the resources that people have in their pockets, in their purse, so that we again can improve quality of life for people. So that third bullet is really my way of telling policymakers get out of the shell of doing things the same way.
0: And. One of the things that you, I mean, you just brought it up here, too, is the device aspect. As you've been traveling, I mean, obviously, a lot of this would sounds great, too, so the connectivity piece. But you need the device to access that Internet. You could go to libraries. Still, a lot of great communities have those. But as you were saying, a lot of it is, you know, personal and connected to the individual via a phone. Are there programs you've seen that help people Get the devices, get the laptops, get the tablets that are working that could be models for other communities?
1: You know, we're seeing a lot of that through the public private sector partnerships. Some of that's working. Um, Comcast Internet Essentials program has been out there. I think Charter has something. On the private sector side, we're seeing a group of community technology center uh, folks that I grew up with, those evangelists out there integrating those services. We're seeing libraries like New York and in um, places like Texas, uh, cities in Texas, where they're actually giving out Wi Fi hotspots for people to take home so they can enable a device that they may have access to. You know, the key thing is we need a comprehensive strategy. We said this in 2010 with the National Broadband Plan that we in the United States were going to take this seriously. Again, we're moving from an inline to online economy, and it has implications across the board. As you all are involved in the CDT, it even goes deeper with regards to people's privacy and the use of their data. We got to do something different. And so that's why I call this book The Digital Invisible. It's almost like when we had the war on poverty in this country, at a certain point, the most impoverished fell off the rolls, but they became America's biggest deficit because at that time we had no solution for how to reintegrate them into the economic structures. And so I'm suggesting the digital is the same. Let's not assume just because we have access to these devices or multiple devices and life is just smooth because we can listen to our music and we can talk to our friends and connect on our social media, that it's all good. It's not all good for the small farmer. It's not all good for the small kid that lives in rural America. It's not all good for that kid that lives across the river here in the District of Columbia. We've got to figure out ways to democratize these systems and create equity so that we're not actually trying to clean this up later when companies and governments and civil society organizations are trying to go online.
0: so well said can I ask you to give me one more story you've been traveling I love to hear these stories why don't you I mean that was a pretty inspiring way to end but I'm not going to let you end there because I have you here tell me the best story you've had from your road trip or the story that has moved you the most so you actually
1: want to hear the best story I had it's kind of a funny story it's not a a sentimental story it actually relates to CDT's mission okay great so I'm walking out of this public housing development in the city of Syracuse and I meet um, these two ladies two African American ladies Dottie and Jane I'm just going to name them and uh, I, I always start my tour by asking people, hey, I'm, I'm not a casework, I'm not the police, I just wanna know what your internet access is like in America. <laughs> you know, because they're looking at you like, who is this lady? And, like, Why is she knocking on my door? <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I just wanna know what, internet access, what your internet access is like in America. So Dottie and Jane is sitting on this bench and Dottie says, my internet is good. She said, I went on Amazon, I ordered my new wig the other day and it's gonna be here tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, and Jane said, well I'm not like Dottie, I can't order, like her because i'm always getting my identity stolen or something's happening or they're trying to use my credit card so i don't really trust the internet like that and jane turns in and says that's because you don't read the privacy (laughs) policy you need to get a little better reading the privacy policies it tells you in there to take your credit card off that purchase when it's time to move on to the next purchase and that story to me really not only entertained me you know, afterwards I gave a big hug, but it also advised me to the fact that people know what's going on. Yeah, They're not passive observers to this whole internet economy. They're actually actively engaged in ways, and they're navigating, just like many of us here on the policy side, or folks on the business side, you know, what are the implications of this new economy moving forward? And they're probably the same people that are having conversations, reading their Facebook feed on, you know, the Face app, and and, and the foreign operatives taking control of your image. I think when we get to that stage in the maturity of the internet, it's time for a conversation, a national yeah. conversation dialogue. And that's what I'm trying to put out there with these stories. Let Washington know that these are real people with real effects, of policymaking. And so I'm really excited about it. I, I wish I had six years to write the book and sort of <laughs> follow people through, like one family through as a sociologist and training. Uh, but that wasn't going to happen because the story needs to be told and needs to be told before somebody else does it. But um, but that's why I entitled it Digitally Invisible because I think those stories just give me life. Every time I go, I, I honestly am so full being out of the beltway talking to real people about what their experiences are
0: well, we look forward to seeing your book in 2020. Thank you very much. It's going to be gonna amazing. You'll be back when it comes out. Y'all come back now, you hear? Come oh, you will be <laughs> back. Yeah, I think mean, there's no way you're not going to be back. The Digitally Invisible is the name of the book. And also, you can find a lot of writing from Nicole on brookings.edu. Google her name. You're not going to be sorry. There's also great photo essays up there. Wonderful work. We got thank another you. photo
1: essay coming out, too. Ooh, which, in which one's about that one going to be on? And a half. Uh, it's about Garrett County, Maryland.
0: Wonderful. The other one was on Stanton, Virginia, yeah. which beautiful, which you talked about. Nicole, thank Thank you so much. It's been beyond a joy. I
1: know. It was always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Communities around the world are working to find innovative ways to address the digital divide. And there's by no means a one-size-fits-all solution. Scott Turnbull from U.S. Ignite is with us today to tell us what his organization is doing to help communities as well as share some success stories. Welcome Scott. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, first, tell us all about
2: U.S. Ignite. What is it? What do you do? Thank you. So U.S. Ignite is a nonprofit. We were started in 2008 uh, with inspiration from the White House and the uh, National Science Foundation to help accelerate the smart city movement. And it was really around helping them make decisions to build out advanced networks and to find applications and services that could use those to prove the value of it.
0: So for those who don't know, what is a smart city? What's a smart city movement?
2: Yeah, that's great. There's a lot of, uh, a lot packed in around that term now. So smart cities really just react to the people living in them these days. They, just, they are able to respond intelligently, and they become another part of the relationship that you have with your community where they can modify traffic or get your health information or get public safety officials to your house faster or something like that.
0: So smart cities then leverage technology to make this happen is make that correct? better
2: decisions they make uh, informed decisions they have context to who you are and what your life is that's great
0: so I would imagine that really great connectivity is an important part of this uh, and fiber networks being an essential part for at least smart cities uh, is
2: that true and why absolutely um, you know, fiber really is absolutely vital to the speed and bandwidth necessary to get these applications to end users it's not just speed though it's coverage you know we need Mm. uh, we need coverage out especially to rural areas but suburban areas and even inner city areas lack significant fiber coverage new york is a great example of that you would be it's got a a tale of many conduits happening there where fiber is hard to get to even these high rises sometimes so dense urban areas can even be a challenge in addition to rural areas and if a smart city has context for you and you don't have access to fiber how much can the city react to you how how much of a part of the community are you if the city can't react to you
0: so i would imagine then that creates kind of disparate Outcomes in different cities. You can Absolutely. be living in the same place, but not have the same experience.
2: That's right. Not you're not able to participate in the education system the same way. You're not. You don't have your voice. You don't have a voice in even local politics in the same way. Uh, you don't get response from the public safety teams. There's a lot that you lack. Uh, fiber is a great equalizer in the modern world.
0: And what are the barriers for cities to really kind of connect an entire city or community to fiber?
2: Yeah, it's really cost and just the physical okay. difficulty of doing it. Fiber is literally wire that. They they have to lay lay between buildings, so you have to dig mm-hmm. the ground and dig a trench and lay it down in the, in, a, in conduit. And they, a lot of cities have adopted what's called a dig once policy, which is you don't want to dig separately for fiber in your, your sewer lines and your mm-hmm. water lines. So they just got, and they said, we're going to dig once. They notify everybody so they can come in and lay fiber, fix the pipes, fix the sewers, and get it all in one. Saves costs dramatically. I mean, that
0: sounds like a great thing that oh, a lot of cities need to do. Yeah. yeah,
2: It saves money tremendously, but very difficult to coordinate and sure. so that's um that's a, a big barrier just the physical administration of that but and fiber is also expensive it takes a lot They're glass it's it's highly engineered glass that has to be rolled down in these in these fiber lines in the ground so uh it takes a lot of money to do that so they're large capital expenditures mm-hmm. that it takes years to recoup on so does somebody have enough money in the bank to be able to lay that fiber or borrow against it to labor in the first place i can talk a little bit later but municipal uh, municipalities are issuing bonds to fund that now and getting it back later while participating with oh, uh, with commodity providers to get that service. Out.
0: And where does US Ignite then step in to make this happen? What's your role in making sure that or helping encourage cities and communities to use fiber?
2: Yeah, so we um, we mostly take it from an apps point of view. So two really, okay. one we we find the applications and they've got this fiber. Now, what do we do with it? Why do we, How do we start finding the, the benefits of it? A lot of these are still sort of small boutique uh, developers that are creating these because uh, they're new networks that couldn't run them before. Yeah. So we're helping to discover them, help them get business plan connected to ex- traditional startup accelerator stuff to get them cool. a business plan operationalized, but also connect them to cities so cities are aware of what's possible in that space in the first place. We spend a lot of time doing that.
0: That's great. What are some of these awesome apps that you've seen then?
2: Yeah. So. We've, uh, there's an app out of Burlington, Vermont that does underground infrastructure monitoring. As you can imagine, it's, it's hard to tell what's happening with your pipes under the ground, but they have a very cheap radar that they can drag over the ground right now and get a full map and you can put VR glasses and see literally in real time wow. the pipes that are underground. It's really a great application. Um, it's safe, it helps cities recover from hurricanes, from earthquakes, uh, to mitigate for aging architecture, all those kinds of things. Uh, there's a great um, application out of North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina, that's about bringing rural students into high technology laboratories. Uh, STEM education is very difficult to, to, um, to get spread across the country, and one of the big barriers is access to high, highly expensive scientific equipment. Being able to bring students in virtually from anywhere in the country is a transformative for these students' mm-hmm. lives. Uh, And we need more of that in the country. So this is just two. There's gunshot detection applications, and there are uh, smart networks that that help build efficiency into it that cut the cost by half of a lot of these networks, smart buildings that cut down the cost of electricity and heat. There's really a lot.
0: Um, I need to ask, and I, I don't think I, I told you I was going to ask this before, but privacy, how does that play a role when it comes to smart cities? I mean, all these applications you just mentioned sound fantastic, but yeah. there's also kind of the uh, the other side. If your city is always interacting and responding to you, maybe it's always listening to you, and that's a lot of data. It
2: is, yeah. and Well, I think there's two sides of that coin. One is everyone's concerned about cities, but... Really, most of the data collection is by businesses, mm-hmm. and um, it's one of the kind of the ironies about worrying about foreign governments and interactions with the United States is they don't need to collect data on you. That that face <laughs> app that just came out, oh, Russians are getting your face. They can yeah. already buy that information. Why, yeah, it, it's it's an odd conversation, but. Um, but back to the concern itself, it is a huge concern. I do think that there's promise in something called privacy by design, which is uh, actually coming out of Canada, but I think it has a lot of promise for us, which, which is these systems need to be explicitly set to collect uh, certain types of information and they do not by default collect other types of information yeah. that needs to be informed. Um, the trade-off is though of how much, how much context can a city have about you if it doesn't know something about you. So, We need to start providing the value of these services before people are willing to give up a lot of their privacy and it needs to be an informed conversation
0: that makes perfect sense so what is kind of the next wave of connectivity we talked about fiber but i mean i keep hearing everything about 5g can that help address some of these connectivity issues or is 5G, is fiber necessary even for
2: 5G? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, <laughs> fiber is the, the, the baseline thing need it. to be done, especially in rural areas. About 44% of the country cannot currently get access to uh, high-speed bandwidth right now. That's a huge barrier. But these, like, people call it 5G, 5G is a blanket term. Some of it is a little bit overhyped. But um, these are sort of dense small cell devices that, that are put up like sort of like your home Wi-Fi router but on steroids, right? They're, they're all over the city. Yeah. The big challenge is 5G needs a lot more density. You might put up a 4G tower now an and it covers a 10 mile radius. 5G little access points may might do a block. A ah, down. interesting. So you need to really put them all over the place. And those are wireless signals to your device. But once it gets to the device, it needs to get to the regular internet and everybody else in the world. And that's by fiber. So fiber density is absolutely critical and a requirement for 5G to really effectively work. Um, and 5G itself, is a good potential answer for dense urban regions, but I don't know that the conversation about it for rural areas is, it's not what I see in it anyway. Let me me put it that way.
0: We didn't touch too much on rural areas. Have you Mm -hmm. seen any kind of more rural communities? take advantage of fiber and kind of interesting applications there that you yeah. want to highlight?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Chattanooga, Tennessee would be a great. They've got um, municipal broadband there for, through EPB, which was their original their power distribution system. Uh, now they've got gigabit to every home and they were first wow. in the country to no offer Way to go, Chattanooga. I know, they are a tremendous story. G- Google them. They're a really tremendous story there. Um, they've got 10 gigabit offering to the home. Wilson, North Carolina is another one. Um, they're merging this, by the way. They're not just uh, doing fiber, they're getting it into the schools, getting education to the people who are in the regions and doing entrepreneurial support as well to bring uh, people into the region to start companies and helping people already there start companies as well. You shouldn't have to choose between a career and where you live in your community, right? Yeah. No, that's great. So before I let you go, if
0: someone is interested, you know, community leader, city leader, interested in being part of US Ignite and really wants to bring fiber to the community, what what should they be thinking of and how should they reach you?
2: <laughs> well, we can only be found at us-ignite.org, and we were happy to talk to any community out there that wants to enter our partnership of smart gigabit communities. We've got 27 now, and we're, I think we're just announcing 28. Um, but we'd love to have you a part of the program and join that conversation. Um, also, they can really start thinking about forming public-private partnerships that help fund it. So that I didn't get to talk about it really oh, please too much do. here, but there's a, some, there's a new model emerging between there's municipal internet where it's entirely paid by pack, uh, p- private, uh, publicly owned, or there's commodity internet which is entirely private, privately owned. There's a hybrid model that seems to be really promising and I like it. We see this in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we see it in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, a few places like that where the city will actually bury the fiber, they own the fiber, but they're not gonna provide the service. They'll lease the service oh, back and get a commodity internet provider to do it. It reduces the barrier of entry to a company because they don't have to make that investment because it's very expensive. The city makes the money back by leasing fees. And then most of them find that they make that money back in a few years. So it's a really good investment for the community. Chattanooga, Tennessee, when they put their internet in, they generated something like $800 million in value for the community uh, just within a few years. I think Illinois, Purdue had a study of Southern Illinois, which said they were missing out on something like $300, $300 million over 15 years of value out of the economy because they didn't have proper coverage these are wow. big gains
0: and these are big things that you're promoting to uh promoting solutions for so yeah. great work thank you for joining tech talk it was a pleasure we'll have to have you back on again and get some local updates thank you it was a real pleasure that's it for this episode of tech talk a very special thank you to cdt's intern union Yun wang for her help with researching and writing for this show Also, for more great content, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and like us on Facebook. I'm Brian Wozolowski. Thanks for listening.